Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This is Chapter 17 in a temporary reformatting of the show as we document what's happening in and around Amarillo due to the impact of the COVID-19 coronavirus. And, thankfully, it's going to be one of the last episodes dedicated to this specific moment in our city because I'm making plans to return soon to our usual format. Before we get to the interviews in this episode, though, here's a word from today's sponsor. This week's episode is sponsored by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum, located in Canyon on the campus of West Texas A&M University. Now, the museum had been closed due to the pandemic, but it's excited to safely welcome guests back starting today, June 1st, at 25% capacity. Panhandle Plains encourages guests to book their tickets online at panhandleplains.org. It also encourages guests to wear face masks for the protection of fellow guests as well as museum staff. They've also set up hand sanitizer and washing stations throughout the facility. Remember, Panhandle Plains is the largest history museum in Texas. That's not just a statement about its three million artifacts, but also about its enormous physical footprint. You've got plenty of space in the museum to social distance. The last couple months have been a period that will be represented in history museums for decades to come. Places like Panhandle Plains are more important than ever, especially if we're going to preserve our history and learn from it. I'm so grateful for their sponsorship of this podcast, and now that the museum has reopened, I hope you'll show them your support. Learn more and get admission tickets at panhandleplains.org. Now on to the show. It's June, and America is in a really difficult place right now. On the coronavirus front, Amarillo's positive test rate has started to level off, which is welcome news. Businesses are reopening, people are venturing out, and most are trying to follow safety guidelines. Meanwhile, larger cities across the United States are experiencing civic unrest following the death of George Floyd, an African-American man at the hands of white police officers in Minneapolis. These protests have spread nationwide as the pain and outrage around racism in our country has come to a head. A lot of these protests in larger cities have become violent with fires, looting, and clashes with police. Much of this appears to be coming from outside groups taking advantage of the chaos. There was a protest march in Amarillo this past weekend, and thankfully it was nonviolent. Participants were diverse. The Amarillo Police Department accompanied the marchers and protected them against a group of anti-protesters, some of whom were armed. Another peaceful event, a community rally, is scheduled for this Saturday, June 6th, at Bones Hooks Park. It's organized by the local chapter of the NAACP, and it begins at 11 a.m. I'll be there. So there's a lot happening. Things are not normal, and I almost decided not to do this episode at all. But like I've said in the past, I think it's important to document this moment in Amarillo. Initially, I intended this episode to act as a wrap-up of the COVID Chronicles series that we've been doing over the past two and a half months. The first COVID Chronicles episode released on March 19th. That's when I switched the format from a one-on-one in-person interview to short interviews over the phone, documenting what the pandemic and the shutdown looked like in Amarillo. Three of the guests from that first episode are back today, Jackie Kingston and Patrick and Crystal Burns. 
to give us some insight into their experiences and their decisions up until now through the pandemic. Their interviews were recorded before the weekend of rioting. So please keep that in mind as you listen. My fourth guest is Mayor Ginger Nelson, who has been leading Amarillo through this moment, a time when we got some national attention while trying to protect the health of her constituents and her own personal health during a crisis. And now, on top of the pandemic, she's at the helm during a period of protest and civic unrest. We talk about that as well. This episode is being released on June 1st, 2020. Things are changing quickly and may change again by the time you listen. Here's the show. This is Ginger Nelson. I'm the mayor of Amarillo. Uh, Mayor Nelson, thank you so much for being on the show. I know this is an incredibly busy uh, time for you. Uh, before we start, I, I just wanted to ask how you are personally holding up. I, I know you're going through some health issues at the moment. How's how's your health right now? Well, thank you. That's very kind of you to ask. Um, obviously, no one expects to draw the cancer card, um, but so far, I'm, the hand I've drawn um, is, is treating me very fairly, and I'm really grateful for the doctors that I have and um, the treatment that I've been taking. I haven't had um, really hardly any side effects, so I'm really grateful for that, and it's just sort of a, we just take it one day at a time, you know, on all of that, but um, the cards and letters and encouragement and the prayers that I've had from people throughout the city about this have just been overwhelming. And my family's so grateful for the love and uh, all of the support that we've had from everybody, not just in Amarillo, but people who have ties to Amarillo from all across the nation. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And I, I know that this is certainly a, a complicated time to be dealing with uh, and a completely unrelated health crisis. So I'm, I'm glad that yeah. uh, so far Unexpected, that's going. Yes. Yeah. Right. So uh, I, I wanted to have you on the show because, as you know, I've been documenting, you know, the response of the city uh, and, and how the pandemic has impacted business owners and individuals and high school seniors and, you know, all of your different constituents. But, you know, th th this interview is occurring at a moment where we've just gone through a weekend of significant civil unrest and, and the pain of, of racism has, has come to the forefront at the same time we're dealing with a, a pandemic. Um, so before we talk really about COVID, uh, I'd like to hear a little from you, just what you are, are seeing here in Amarillo and in, in the response of African-American community and, and the rest of the city, you know, in, in dealing with some of some of these struggles? Well, first of all, I'm completely repulsed by any act of violence that would be based on um, any act of violence. I guess you could just stop it right there. But certainly if tagged on to that, it's purposeful because of someone's race, ethnicity, even their opinion or their um, gender identity or <laughs> anything like that is just completely against what I think we as Americans should stand for. And just my, my faith is very important to me. And so just my Christian faith, um, it's, it's just repulsive to me that we would ever act in violence instead of pulling up a chair to the table and trying hard to work on ideas through dialogue, through tough questions, through um, challenging ideas. And um, I think we have tried that, <laughs> certainly have had some giants in our history with Dr. King and 
so many people in the civil rights movement who have tried. Um, so I'm not sure what it looks like now. Um, you know, I hear people saying we can't stand by silent. And I think, no, we can't. If there's ever injustice, we can silence is not an option. Um, I don't, I don't know what the action steps are just being extremely candid. Um, I think this is a very challenging issue for us. It's a very painful issue. And as a, as a nation, we're in a pain dance on it. Um, so I'm spending a lot of time praying about it. I want to learn. I want to listen. And I think that's the stance that I would ask for our city to be in one of learning and one of listening. And I just, I love that scripture. It talks about outdo. I think it's Romans. It's in Romans 12 and it talks about outdo one another in showing honor. And if that's the, if that's the standard showing each other honor, um, I think we're going to get a lot further down the road of solving these problems, but it's easy to say and hard to do. Yeah. There was a protest march on Saturday in Amarillo. Um, was was fairly small, but in in terms of you know comparison to a, a lot of what's happening in larger cities, uh, was was relatively peaceful and you know mm-hmm. seemed to be a a situation where the Amarillo police were were working hard to protect those who were expressing their you know, their rights and, and their opinions. Uh, I, I wonder what your thoughts were on not just the march itself, but also the way it was handled and the outcome of it. I was very proud of Amarillo. I was proud of the people who demonstrated because it takes courage to step out and say, this is my opinion on this. And you may not agree with it, but this is how I feel. And so I very much so respected everyone who participated in the march. I also respected the fact they chose um, to say it, but there was no violence associated with it. And and I think that's that's the right way to do it, obviously. Um, I so appreciated the leadership of Chief Birkenfeld. I mean, he's less than a month on the job, and he has his officers out there walking with them side by side so that they can be safe and that. And so we as a city can know that their opinions are being heard, but it's not escalating into something that they never intended for it to escalate into. And I think that was great leadership on his part. And I appreciated the professionalism in the service of our police officers who walked with them. Um, Demonstrating in our city to take a stand against an injustice should never um, be something that you would be ashamed of or that someone else could co-opt into a moment of violence or um, essentially terrorism, you know? So I think I was very proud of how our city participated and our police department supported and protected. So obviously this is a moment where, you know, as, as a leader, you're facing two different crises and and two very different kinds of crises um, one is related to the way that we treat each other one is related to our health and and, and those are just two different battlefronts I, I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit just about 
what has helped to guide you uh, through this moment as you've you've tried to guide the city to to lead, whether it's the police department, whether it's the the public health department. Um, you know, you're in a moment of leadership, and and hardly anyone is is going to be fully equipped for something like this. So, where are you drawing your strength from as as you go through these these past few weeks and months? Yeah, my faith is really important to me. Um, I start every day at my prayer table, and I draw my strength from that. And I love the verse that says, you know, that my mind would be transformed to the mind of Christ. And I think, okay, if I can have the thoughts through the Holy Spirit that Christ had, and that translates into my words and into the desires of my heart and into the wisdom that I use to try and make leadership decisions when you don't have all of the facts or when the situation is changing so rapidly that the facts are different than they were 30 minutes ago. Um, And everyone has an opinion, so you cannot lead toward public opinion. You must just lead out of what you feel like is the wisdom matched up with the calling. And and to me, I, I said yes to doing this job because I felt called to do it. There's a, there's a deep spiritual purpose in doing it. Um, and I, that's where I get my strength in leading. And um, thankfully, it's an unending supply <laughs> because <laughs> lately the days have been long and the challenges have been pretty steep. Um, but if I were to rely on the court of public opinion, um, you have 200,000 200, different courts of public opinion in our city. And this COVID issue is right now one of the most polarizing issues I think the world has ever seen. And um, even the things, you know, we've taken our grief, we're all grieving that life as we have known it is at least temporarily paused and we're not sure when it's coming back. And we've taken that grief and politicized it on most fronts, which is so unusual. If you have a death in your family, everyone gives you the room to grieve in your own individual way. You know, there are very few expectations on how we grieve. But yet here we are judging each other in how we're grieving and we're politicizing how we're grieving. And so it makes for a very painful and challenging experience for all of us. There's 200,000 of us. That's just inside the city limits, the people that I work for. Um, But it's nationwide, it's worldwide. So it's just such a huge balancing act of dealing with people's pain. And some people are angry in their pain. Some people are depressed in their pain. Some people are afraid in their pain. Um, People are sad. Some people are moved out of compassion to take action in their pain. And so it's, it's fascinating to watch um, the email that the mayor gets and just see the, the shift and the, the wide array of how people are dealing with their pain. And, and for the most part, whether it's an angry email or whether it's a desperate email, I can just see it's, it's written out of, it's written out of pain, uncertainty, fear, frustration. Um, you know, anger is a secondary emotion. So all of, all of the email that I get that's angry, I know there's something else there first. And I really think it's fear usually um, you mentioned a minute ago this this race relations conversation that's come up over the weekend, and um, you know it's I don't really think it's separate from COVID. Nothing in our worlds right now is separate from COVID. Um, COVID is creating a different stage 
for all of our old problems to reappear on. And um, we're maybe less patient, less rested, less tolerant than we were before COVID. And in some ways, that's good. If we as a nation are going to step out and actually make some changes on how we address and better do race relations in our communities, that's good change. Hmm. Um, if, If we're going to attack small business owners and destroy their property, that's not good change. And I don't think the people that are doing those things are the same people. Let me be clear about that. But I do think that it we are in a different place under our COVID response than we were three months ago. And we're going to react to those problems differently because our minds and our emotional and our mental states are different than they were three months ago. What has the the past two and a half months revealed to you about Amarillo? I mean, you you served as mayor for you know, three years prior to this crisis. Uh, but I know that the, these intense moments like we've, we've been through reveals a lot about character, whether it's the character of a leader or the character of a city itself. So I, I wonder if there's anything that you feel you've learned, um, you know, uh, about this place as we've dealt with this together. It's definitely affirmed for me that we are a very loving community. Um, So many people have stepped into a gap that they saw, not because, hey, the city did this or this nonprofit was doing this, but people just responded to individual people's needs. And I saw that story over and over again, going to the grocery store for elderly neighbors or whatever the need was. As people saw the need, they just stepped up and met it. And that makes me very, very proud. Um, Two more things I think I've seen are that we we go too much. Um, over and over again, I hear people saying, it's been good to slow down. It's been good to not have my schedule packed full of this event or that thing or this place to go to. I've spent more time with my family because we weren't going as much. And so I, I hope um, that we as a city will continue to hold on to that pace of life. I think it's healthier for us. Um, Obviously, it's somewhere in between where we've been right now and where we were before. But the pace of life is something I think we've learned from noticing maybe 90 miles an hour is not the best pace of life for us to do. And then the last thing I would say is I've watched people um, become aware of where they had their values, where they were placing their security, where they placing their security in their financial, you know, Stability. Were they placing their security um, in in their social calendar? Were they placing their security in being able to go to work every day? Um, and so, as those things were taken away from us quite suddenly, I have watched people um, struggle to find out where their value came from and what essentially what was what was most important to them in life. Was it family or was it work? Um, was it, you know, social things or was it the actual relationships behind those social things? So those are three takeaways and I could probably keep answering on that question because I've done a lot of thinking and a lot of observing about that, but, um, I'll stop there. 
I'll give you one more question. And, you know, one of the things that, that I've been really interested in is asking my guests, you know, what has been giving them hope during this moment or what do they think they will remember going forward? Um, and, and I think that, you know, you having been in a position where you are, you know, responsible for 200,000 people as the mayor, um, particularly have something memorable that, that is tying you to, to this experience. So I, I wonder if, you know, thinking 15, 20 years from now, like, what do you think you'll, you'll take away from it just personally? What will you remember most? What are the, the challenges or the wins or the, um, you know, the, the things that you've seen in this community that's, that will stay with you the longest? I think that's a whole book, Jason. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of my biggest impressions from this time will be how quickly we've pivoted um, the, the drastic changes we've made um, in operating things in such a short period of time. Um, So many examples in the city of systems we did not have three months ago, and now we have them. Um, you know, we, I call myself the impatient mayor because I get frustrated at bureaucracy says, okay, we need to post this and then we'll have a meeting on it and then we'll ratify it. However much longer we'll be able to actually do the thing we thought was such a great idea to begin with. Well, a lot of that went out the window when people's health was involved, then we were able to move very quickly. And and I like that as a leader. I'm like, well, when I can see it's a good idea, I want to implement it immediately. So I very much so liked being able to move at the speed of the situation. And I think there have been some good changes, some great progress made in um, even like in our IT department, in our health department, in our communications department. You've seen them grow um, and get things accomplished that before COVID we never would have thought were possible in a two-week time frame or you know a two-month time frame. Um, even just the way we have now increased our social media reach with the city's um, social media pages is tremendous because now that's a voice that we didn't have before. And so that's a, if you want to understand each other, you've got to be able to listen and then you've got to be able to put out accurate facts. Um, and, you know, like our, our Facebook status alone has gone up thousands of people, just a straight up spike when you look at the analytic data. And I think that will be helpful to us going forward in how we communicate with citizens and how we're better able to hear their voices back. So whether it's in the communications department, whether it's the health data that people can get online and quickly see, you know, creating that dashboard and the report card and the, the level system, you know, all of that just happened. We didn't have that sitting on a shelf somewhere. We had to actually create all of that as this was happening. And I think people, sometimes I get frustrated when I watch social media and people are critiquing and, nitpicking here there and like yeah there's always room for us to improve but folks do you recognize what has happened how hard the city staff has worked and everything that they've put together and created in the midst of this situation is just it's overwhelming to me and I will always remember I will be 90 years old and I will always remember how hard the staff worked 
to serve the people of our community and to keep them safe. Casey Stoughton, the head of our health department, Jordan Shupak, the head of our communications department, Kevin Starbuck, Jared Miller. These folks have put their lives completely aside to serve the city for the last three months. And I don't know if anyone will ever fully understand um, how much better off we've been because of the way they served us. Mayor Ginger Nelson, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Jason, it's always an honor. I'm Jackie Kingston. I'm the evening anchor and executive producer for KAMR Local 4 News here in Amarillo. Jackie, thanks for being on the podcast again. The The first time we talked was in the middle of March, and you know we were just beginning to see the impact of the virus in Amarillo. We were starting to shut down some businesses. It was spring break, um, and, and that's the moment that I switched to this format uh, to start talking about the impact of of COVID-19. And, and since you were part of that first episode and had talked about the ways that the newsroom was changing and some of your plans going forward, uh, I wanted to kind of look back and, and see, you know, two and a half months later, um, kind of where you are with this. So, so tell me first, like, what has it been like to be in the newsroom, to be reporting on all of this stuff? Um, sometimes, you know, as news is, has just been happening day by day and hour by hour. It has been, um, unlike any other experience I have ever had in news. At the, at the beginning of this, when we first talked, I'm not even sure we had our first ca- confirmed case in Amarillo. And after we had that first confirmed case, everything ramped up. Like we knew that it was coming. We knew that we were likely going to have a case. It was just kind of how the nation was going. And we judged by other communities that it was going to hit our community at some point. And when it did, all of our coverage changed. And we went to almost wall-to-wall coverage of the coronavirus and how to prepare our community, how to equip them for what was here and what we knew was coming potentially in the future. But I'm not sure that we could have prepared for um, the influx of cases that we have had in the past couple of weeks. So when we had that first case, we started really thinking, okay, who can who can leave the newsroom? How can we get how can we social distance in the newsroom? Because we are, you know, right next to each other, working elbow to elbow, trying to, you know, uh, trying to get out all this news. And our four o'clock show that is Studio Four, which is usually a fun variety show that Andy anchors uh, with upcoming events and all this stuff and previewing great things in our community and all this, that moved to a news format. And so we had an additional one hour of news content to create a day. So we've got all of these people in the newsroom working together on the same product, but needing to do it remotely and needing to do it from home. When the mobile testing started here in the city, when they opened up that mobile testing, a person who lived in my household went to be tested, was screened, had the symptoms, went to be tested. It came back negative. They're fine. But while we were waiting for those results, and actually when they left the house to go and get the test, I immediately called my boss and I was like, I don't know if I've been exposed to this. And she goes, you can't come back to the newsroom. Hmm. And so I was the first one to be out of the newsroom and to be working from home. And I was the guinea pig for all sorts of trial and error and trying to figure out how do we get good audio? How do we get good video? What programs are we using to make sure that I can be heard and be present in the newsroom and that I can be heard and be present in a newscast 
but from, you know, not even anywhere close to the studio. And so I worked from home for the next few weeks. I think it was, I think it was four weeks, but I can't believe it's only been two and a half months. Um, so I worked from home for the next four weeks. I was, we were able to figure out the technology to get so many other people out of the newsroom to where a couple of weeks ago, I was able to come back to the newsroom and we were still able to keep, you know, like four or five people only spread out around the station producing newscasts. So that whole working from home (laughs) taught me a lot about news and a lot about myself and a lot about my colleagues too. It was uh, something I would never like to do again. I can tell you that. (laughs) I was going to say, is, is it something that was a, I mean, obviously not a welcome challenge. I mean, but is is having to make those adjustments on the fly. Um, do you do you feel that it was um, maybe beneficial to you? I and mean, did it did it kind of change the way that uh, that you do your job? Absolutely. Yeah, it made me realize. I always knew that news was really collaborative, but I think it made me realize how important every voice in the room is, and it made me think about you know when. <laughs> I, because we were, we were using like teams or, um, you know, uh, zoom or whatever to be in the newsroom, to just have it up. So that as we were collaborating throughout the day, we could still, you know, have input and and have editorial discussions as we were going. And I got muted one time and I I was so angry that I was muted. And I was like, my voice matters. I was like, I know other people feel this way more often. And it made me realize that, I need to be more aware of the quieter people and the people who may not have, you know, the louder voices and who are, who are, who are muted in a, in a way that's not an actual mute on a computer, but who, you know, maybe we don't listen to enough in the newsroom. So it made me think about that. And it made me really impressed by all of my colleagues and how flexible they are and how we have just learned to be like the water. We, I mean, whenever anything comes up, we've just got to, we've got to get the product on. We've got to still be, on TV, our deadline has not changed, and my colleagues have risen to the occasion um, and done a really, really great job, work that we are really proud of. Is there anything in this moment, you know, crisis situations have a way, like you said, of, of revealing things to us, whether it's personally, whether it's professionally. I mean, is there anything that maybe you have have started to understand better about our city and the way that, that you relate you know, whether to the stories or to the individuals? I mean, are you, are you looking at Amarillo in any different way at this point? I think maybe net neutral at this point, because there have been some really positive things that I think have been revealed about our city, the all in Amarillo and, and the, we're all in this together that people, you know, we came out of the gate really together and, and united. It felt like as a community and we were, we were all supporting one another and, small businesses were going to be okay and all of that. And, and there have been some, there's been some negative um, pushback too, I think. And so I think, you know, the good and the bad of our city together is what is going to keep us going forward in the future. And that's kind of the story of Amarillo. I think we're very steady and, and we will be moving forward as well. Can you talk a little about the emotional toll that it takes reporting on sickness and reporting on, death and, and and the things that you know are community-wide struggles even as what's happening in this community began to get some national attention i mean 
you you come across on TV as very professional, very put together, but I mean, obviously, that's not always the case internally. I mean, what's that like? I think it's important to, like you said, be be neutral on television, and um, our product is neutral, and we try and um, you know bring all of, all sides of the story, and it's not just always just one side and the other. Um, we try and bring all the voices into the conversation about it. But yeah, I think seeing this, you know, this illness go through our community and our friends and our neighbors and those who have been affected um, has been really sad. And I think that, you know, we, I did a story about um, Bill and Reba Hunter who were from the Groover Groover and uh, Spearman area. And I just needed to put a face and a story to the numbers that we were reading every day, because I was finding myself very jaded about all of it because it's this intense fog of emotion that just kind of surrounds you when you're, when you're in this story every single day. And, you know, in the newsroom, it sort of feels like groundhog day. We're just reporting on the same story and trying to do it in, in the best manner that we can and, and challenging each other and trying to be creative, but still, yeah, dealing with those emotions of, of loss and of fear and of uncertainty moving forward. And so when I, when I did that story, I just kind of thought I need to know these, you know, more than 70 people who have died in our community and have died. What we know is a sad, lonely death. Like I needed to know someone, I needed a totem to bring me back to these are people. And this is why this story is the most important story I will ever cover in my lifetime is because these people matter and they have these beautiful stories to tell and so a lot of people, understandably, who are surviving this or, you know, have lost people to this illness, aren't ready to talk about it. Um, but I was, I was glad to find Bill and Rita's daughter and, and talk to her, Lillian, and to get to know them. And it really brought me back to, okay, it brought me through a stage of burnout that I think I, I didn't really realize that I was in. And I think each of those stories matter moving forward. It's not just Bill and Reba, but it's every single one of those people who have become ill, who have gone through the coronavirus and who have either beaten it or who have lost their battle, right? And who have passed away. All of their stories matter. And making sure that I remembered that all of the numbers that we were reading every day and getting really bogged down and trying to get the right ones every single day, get it right every single time, those were people and they still are and they continue to be and so that's an important reminder for me. And I think it was for my colleagues as well. Like, this is why this is the most important story we will ever cover is because of our audience is because of our community. And it's because of these, these people whose stories we are entrusted to tell. And that's, that's the most important thing that we could be doing right now. Given the, you know, the, the knowledge that what's happening right now is the most important story that you'll cover in your lifetime, you know, as you, as you move forward, you know, and, and we get, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years past this, what, what do you think is the, the biggest memory you're going to have? And what's the thing that you're going to talk to people about, um, you know, when, when we begin to talk about this time and have those conversations? What do you think that'll be? I think I'll talk about Bill and Reba. I think I'll talk about the night that we had our first case. And it was like on my lunch break and I ran back to the station and we got on air immediately and I took a minute we were we were about to go on that the city of Amarillo was going to have a press conference to announce 
what we thought was going to be the first case and it turned out to be. And so we were all hands on deck ready and, and there. And I got in the studio and they were like, okay, you ready? And I was like, wait, I just need, I just need 30 seconds. And I read the press release again and I sat there in the studio and I took a big deep breath and I was like, this is it. This is where this starts. And so I think I'll remember that story. I think I'll remember talking with the governor, which has been awesome to get mm-hmm. to, um, you know, have access to people who are in conversation with the White House every day and people who, you know, and, and getting to, to tell our story and getting to ask questions specifically in our area and getting to advocate for our community here to the governor face to face. Those are experiences that I'll, that I'll tell. And I'll probably talk about um, how tired we all were and um, I hope to talk about how proud we were and are um, of the work that we're doing. Jackie Kingston, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Jason, thank you. I enjoyed it. Hi, I'm Crystal Burns, and I am one of the owners of Palace Coffee Company. And I'm Patrick Burns, and I am the other owner of Palace Coffee Company. Crystal and Patrick, thank you so much for being back on the podcast. I I know that the two of you talked to me once the format shifted uh, in the middle of March, and you were one of the businesses that you know, made some really quick decisions, decided here's here's how we're going to address this crisis as it landed in Amarillo. And now we're two and a half months after that, and you have continued to make adjustments all along the way. And I, I appreciate you being here. I just kind of wanted to hear what that process was like, you know, from where you started in the middle of March to where you are now and, and the impact on your business, your employees, and your customers. So can you kind of walk me through some of the steps that you took as as you thought about doing business during a pandemic? Sure. Uh, really, the initial steps that we had were just a lot of meetings uh, between me and her and our management team. Uh, we were having meetings daily, uh, just trying to keep up with as much information that was available to us. And as we said before on the earlier podcast, really watching and talking with other people in our industry and bigger markets that were going through this a week or two weeks ahead of what our community was having to deal with it before we even had some of our first cases. Uh, so those were the initial steps in making those decisions. We don't know if those m- decisions were a mistake or not. Uh, we don't feel like they were. We feel like we were a little bit ahead of the curve of making those decisions of of closing down our dining rooms, going to takeaway only, um, going to curbside, uh, starting deliveries. We feel like all of those things were were fast decisions. We typically don't make decisions that quickly, uh, but we felt like that was the best thing that we could do with the amount of information we had in front of us. And we had a lot of community support. A lot of our, our, our guests understood why we were doing what we're doing. Um, we, of course, had some naysayers. We had some guests that, uh, you know, thought we were overreacting. We had, you know, some guests definitely uh, make it difficult on our baristas instead of our frontline service employees. They're the face-to-face uh, interaction point uh, with our policies and procedures. And so sometimes they take the brunt of frustration. That might not even be directed at us. It's just frustrated with the situation in general. Uh, but it's sometimes easy to kind of let loose uh, on a person. Um, so those decisions that we made early, we have kept up and we've actually become a little bit more stringent on some of them. And then some things we've relaxed. Um, but we feel like overall, we've done the best we could do to protect our employees and to protect our guests. Tell me, tell me about some of those those changes or I guess your your practice as it evolved when it comes to some things you made more stringent and some you relaxed. I mean, how how did you go about those decisions and kind of watching things play out? 
Um, I think our stance has been um, kind of to be overly cautious, uh, just because, again, we feel we have such a responsibility to keep our staff and our customers safe. And so we felt like we could not be too careful. Um, so some of the things that we initially did right away that we're actually still doing is we do 30-minute cleaning uh, cycles. So every 30 minutes, we wipe down every single surface. And, of course, they're doing that even more so when they can, but at, at the minimum, it's every 30 minutes. Obviously, you know, having our staff wash their hands frequently. Uh, we we implemented, um, once we were able to get our hands on some, we implemented where our, we do require our guests to sanitize their hands when they come in to order. Um, and that was one of the ones that ha- we got a little bit of pushback on. Some of the guests did not want to do that. Um, and in, in our mind, the reason we were doing that is because they're coming up, they're going to be touching the iPad and different things like that. And, and it's just another measure of precaution that we wanted to take. Um, and so some of those guests that got frustrated by that, um, that's fine, totally their prerogative. But we just, you know, basically said, if you can't adhere to the things that we have in place, then unfortunately you can't order. And, and so we did have some people walk out and, and leave. And we were okay with that because, again, we felt like it was responsibility of us to protect our staff and, and our other customers. Um, and we had far more positive response than negative and then the other thing that we uh, had uh, had originally said is that we had made masks optional for our staff. We had said, like, whenever you go to cur- go to curbside or when you go deliver, you have to wear a mask. But inside the shop, we didn't make them wear masks. But as things kind of picked up and escalated and our cases picked up, uh, we determined that it would be better for everyone, uh, not just to keep our staff safe, but also to make our customers feel safe and feel like, we were, you know, kind of making a stance of we're going to go ahead and do this because my mask protects you and your mask protects me. And we didn't require our customers to wear masks. We highly encourage them to, but we do require our staff to, and we, we continue to have them wearing masks inside of our shop. So that was one of the things that we got a little bit more, um, a little bit more strict on, I would say, because originally it was optional. And then we, we went to where we actually are now mandating that, um, I'm trying to think if there was, what, was there anything that we leaned? I don't know that we really eased up on anything. I think we've kind of just kept consistently and added some things. Outside now we're, now we're allowing seating. Um, again, yeah. now that that's, that's been opened up to the state of Texas, but even with that though, the state of Texas is now at 50% capacity. We're still limiting our seating to 25% capacity. Uh, we just like to see a little bit more of a downturn in, in the trend of COVID cases here um, before we start opening up to even more. But we're also doing other things to try to help mitigate the fact that we don't have as much seating. We bought new patio furniture for for one of our stores that that allows more seating outside. Uh, and um, we've just rearranged our stores to try to make the most of the space we have so we can still social distance. And I know that you have, you know, made those kinds of decisions uh, with a couple of your locations, but haven't fully opened all locations like the one downtown. Correct. What What kind of decision making... It, or, or what are you trying to see like before you can, you know, open up everything? Uh, the big thing with downtown, it's not as much of a safety issue. Uh, we still use that as our roastery. We're still down there roughly three to four days a week, uh, having meetings or uh, roasting coffee and getting deliveries ready. Uh, so we are able to see the traffic patterns of downtown, just people driving down Polk street or people going to offices. We're starting to see more and more people come downtown, come back to, to work uh, in their office buildings, but we're not seeing a heavy enough traffic load uh, to really necessitate staffing 
downtown again. We'd rather keep our staff spread out amongst the other two shops because we are having extra uh, shifts to make sure that we can keep our, our shop sanitized. Uh, we actually have what we call our COVID captain. Uh, it's a shift that basically makes sure that everything that we have in policy to protect everyone, everyone's adhering to uh, in the kindest way possible. Uh, so, so right now we don't even have the staff to really staff up all three shops, especially if we start extending our hours back to our normal hours. Uh, we did just do a, a round of hiring. We brought seven people on that we're training right now. So we're hoping by sometime in July, um, we'll be able to to have all three shops back open um, and hopefully be close back to, to normal hours. How have your team members responded to it? Because, you know, signing up to be a barista, you know, a year ago, means something very different to what they're doing now. And so they've had to adapt just as you have adapted. And in a lot of cases, you're dealing with young college students, you know, people who don't have a ton of workplace experience. They're learning on the job anyway. I mean, how how have you kind of navigated through that part of it? Well, our staff is absolutely amazing. They've They've been troopers through the whole thing. We, I mean, especially in the early parts of this, we were changing policies and procedures on the daily and we were sending out messages and like, okay guys, now we need you to do this. And they, they really were troopers about everything. I think the hardest part for, for them is um, they're not the ones making the decisions we are. And so, but they get the brunt of those decisions. So the customers, if they're frustrated or upset or mad, they're, they're getting the, you know, heat for that when it's really not there, <laughs> they don't have any control over it. They're just doing what we ask them to do as owners. Um, and I think that's been the hardest thing or just like, I think a lot of them actually do agree with how we've navigated through this and the decision, decisions that we have made. So it feels a little bit personal when somebody comes in and doesn't want to adhere to the things that we put in place. Um, and so I think that's been the hardest thing for them and it's been very wearing on them. And again, they, they've had a lot of positive feedback and a lot of people that come in that thank them and, and things like that, but it's always a lot easier unfortunately to focus on the negative things that are said and the negative vibes that you feel from people um versus all of the positive so i would say they've done an amazing job they they just they've had to deal with a lot of a lot of random situations that they wouldn't have to deal with on a day-to-day basis and one thing that we've tried to do or we did actually at the very beginning we were lucky enough to be one of the first businesses to get the ppp money uh that in that very first week and so we knew that our baristas were going to be dealing with a little bit more uh, interesting circumstances by working for us, by still being uh, a frontline employee when it comes to uh, dealing with guests. And so we instituted hazard pay right away. So we started paying everybody time and a half that works for us um, until our, our PPP money runs out, which actually is, is coming up next week. Uh, so we feel like uh, our decision-making to help protect them as much as we can, and then our focus on trying to make sure that we didn't see a negative turn in in their pocketbook to make sure they can get paid as much as they can make right now during this time, this uncertain time. It was the best way to show our appreciation to them and to try to take care of them because we do have that responsibility as owners is to make sure that they're okay. You know, there's, there's a lot of research about periods of crisis and how they bring um, – you know, communities together, whether it's members of a workforce, whether it's your family, um, you know, in any group of people, 
can find some sort of renewal because of a crisis. And, and even a business can. You come through the crisis learning things about yourselves and, and changing things that are ongoing and that outlast you know, that period of uncertainty. Have, have you seen any of that, whether it's in your business, whether it's in uh, how you treat customers, things that might be different going forward as a result of this? I think so. Uh, I, I think you'd be a fool to go through anything that is this different and not allow it to change your outlook or change the way that you interact. Um, we've seen some of our baristas that really were, you know, just in it for a job. But during this period of time, they really came to appreciate what they get to do. Uh, the lack of the interaction with our guests, because we wouldn't allow people to come in and and sit in our shops. Um, there was almost a decline in the energy. And so now that we're allowing seating again, you can just see this, this level of appreciation of interacting with guests um, that maybe they, they lost or didn't have before. Uh, so that's been great. Seeing them take care of each other has been fantastic. Um, we were trying to protect everyone as best we could. So we've actually had six different of our baristas um, quarantine themselves over this process, sometimes for a few days, sometimes for a week or two, just based off of either them having some kind of contact with someone who was being tested. So we would, you know, have them quarantine at home and we'd still pay them. Um, and, and, you know, some, one of our baristas actually had someone in their family that tested positive for it. Um, and so we quarantined them until we got the all clear from, from the doctors that that, that person come back to work. Uh, and even in the midst of that time with our baristas being quarantined, seeing other baristas step up and take care of them and drop, you know, things off and, and check in with them to see how they're doing on a day to day. That's something that, that is really special. I think just, just seeing the, the amount of care and compassion for just even our small community of, of palace, uh, just really step up and, and take care of each other. And I know that, you know, what, what strikes me about this is the two of you have been going through this period, you know, kind of a, a life and death period, literally, with the community having to adjust your business and walk employees through that. And at the same time, you've got a senior in high school who was supposed to be graduating, was supposed to be having you know all of these moments, and you're navigating this period with him from a parenting perspective. And anybody who's a parent right now, especially of a teenager, knows how hard this has been. So tell me a little bit about that. You know the 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 struggles in your work life. The, uh, uh, the the way that it plays out at home once you get off of that. I mean, there's there's no let up in the amount of pressure there. Yeah, we've had a lot of late night conversations. Um, sometimes it's like, okay, we have to deal with this palace thing and then we're going to go check in on Caden and see how Caden's doing with everything. Um, the good news is we have a very uh, positive outlook um, on life and we kind of have modeled that for our kids their whole life. And so when all of this hit, um, we've had a lot of conversations with Caden about it's it's totally okay to feel the disappointment because it's disappointing. All of this stuff is disappointing. And we need to feel that disappointment, but we also can't live there. We have to figure out, okay, we're here. There's nothing that anybody can do to change this. It's nobody's fault. It's just where we're at. So how are we going to navigate through this and make the best of it? And we've had a lot of great family time um, on Saturday, whenever it was there, the day that they were supposed to graduate you know, we, we made a, a huge deal of it for him. We decorated the house. We made a video of a bunch of his friends, you know, congratulating him and telling them what he means to them. And 
And we had, you know, a couple of different groups of friends come over and social distance with him. And so we tried to just make it as big of a deal as we could and as special as we could for him. Um, and then we've just been talking a lot about, you know, this is a part of, of, of what is in your life. It's a part of your story, but it doesn't define you. None of this disappointment defines who you are. Um, and so we've just tried to really like find, find the, the bright lights and the very dark places and, and allow him to, to feel what he needs to feel, but also to, you know, find some joy in, in happiness in even the hard times, I guess. And we've had some really good moments uh, and some great news that have come even in the midst of all of this. Uh, he was, able to, uh, you know, pick his college based on, you know, having some large scholarships come through. Uh, so I think if, if he hadn't had some of that bright future ahead of him, it might've made it even more difficult, but because we're able to, to even celebrate inside of this time, uh, that's what kind of helped all, all of us kind of to stay together and stay positive. Yeah. It's definitely been a lot of navigating though. We feel like we've kind of had it coming, like you say, from every point, it's like we've got this business and these decisions that we've got to make. And then we've got, you know, our kid who's hurting and, you know, quite frankly, a, a freshman in high school that, is also, you know, hurting in a different way and, and having to navigate through some fears and some things in a different way. So it's, it's been a watch. Um, but we, Patrick and I always talk about how we tag team life together. And so luckily we're, we're great partners in crime and we have been able to, you know, kind of take all of those as it comes and, and do it together. And I definitely think our family will come out stronger on the other side. To close things out, I'd like to hear from each of you, you know, what, what is maybe one thing that you think you'll remember most from this period? You know, as, as you think about, you know, 20 years from now, you're talking to your grandkids about it. They're studying this in U.S. history or world history, and they ask you about it. I mean, what are some of the things that you're going to take away from it? Uh, it, it really is hard being in the moment to really dig deep and, and figure out what we've learned from it. Um, I've, there's some negative aspects of things that I've learned that, you know, we have seen the worst in, in parts of our community, unfortunately. Um, we've seen leaders rise up and try to do what they feel is right, but then also get attacked and get knocked down. Um, but on the same you know, side of that coin, we've also seen people encourage our leaders. And that's just local leaders and, you know, state leaders um, that are just trying to make the most out of the, the decision they have to make with, with what they've been given. Um, so I think that's tough is that even in the midst of this, at the very beginning, there was unity, but then it very quickly turned divisive. Um, so I hope that we can learn from this, uh, that in the midst of a global uh, pandemic, that unity should be something that we strive for even more. Um, it just seems like the longer this goes on, the more frustration that we're starting to see out of people and the quicker they are to sometimes devolve. Uh, but I still have hope that we can we can grow from it and we can have healthy conversations. Uh, one thing that we've really appreciated over this is that it's made us better communicators with our staff, it's made us better communicators with our family. Uh, we've grown closer to some friends uh, that we didn't really have the tight relationship with going into this, but ever since this has happened, uh, we've been quick to check in with people because we know mental health is, is a pretty uh, big issue and whenever you have to quarantine yourself or seclude yourself, it's difficult to sometimes come out of those dark places. And so I think it's important that we as a people understand that, that we all come from different parts of, of life. And we all have different beliefs. But one thing that we all have in common is we're all part of the human race. 
And so we all need to just focus on each other and reach out and just make sure we're all doing okay. Yeah. And I, I think too, um, I really enjoy just the time spent. And I think if it's taught me anything, it's taught me that like, it's okay to slow down. It's okay to not be so busy. I think I tend to fill my time with either volunteer stuff or work stuff or kids stuff. And I don't take a lot of time for myself. And I don't always take a lot of time even to be intentional with what we do as a family. And I think being almost, I mean, not almost, being forced to slow down and stay home and not have to go anywhere and not have to have anything on the calendar. um, That's something that I think I'll definitely take away from this of like, I don't have to fill my calendar with something all the time. I don't have to be doing something all the time. In fact, it's very, it's been very refreshing for me as a person to have some intentional time with my family and have some intentional time with some different friends and things like that. So I think that that's definitely something I'll remember a lot is the time spent and the way that we spent it. And also just from a business standpoint of like, sometimes you have to reinvent your business and you just have to do what, what you have to do to make it work. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs are, are feeling that and learning that and doing things that they never thought they would be doing before. And some of those things we may continue to do, you know, even past this pandemic. And I think we now know that I feel like if we can get through this pandemic, we can pretty much face anything that might come. So I definitely think that that's what I would take away from all of this. Crystal and Patrick Burns, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. We appreciate all you've been doing. And that concludes the episode. First, I want to say thanks to Jackie, to Crystal, Patrick, and to Mayor Nelson for sharing their perspective in this episode. All of them are very busy. They've all got stuff on their plate. I really do appreciate them making time uh, to talk on Hey Amarillo. I want to say thanks also to Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for sponsoring the podcast and to Angelina Marie for editing this episode and providing valuable feedback every week. Feedback you don't always hear, but I get to uh, enjoy. It makes the show better. This podcast is made possible in part because some really generous people support it through Patreon at patreon.com slash Executive producers of Hey Amarillo include Valerie Gooch, Joshua Rafe, Jess Heredia, Josh Wood, Chriselda, Patrick Burns, Wilson Lemieux, Wes Reeves, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Neil Nossiman, Jennifer Callahan, Ryan Pennington, and Corey Burns. This has been episode 147, and the last two and a half months have felt like two and a half years. My name is Jason Boyette. Stay safe, wear a mask, love your neighbor. <laughs>